So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, here on a clear and bright and crisp and yeah, spring. Oh, yeah, it's still spring. Is it? No, it's officially uh, summer, officially, is it not? Yeah, officially summer as of uh, this week. So, uh huh. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it by our mornings here. They're <laughs> <laughs> 55 and 60 degrees in the end of June, which I won't complain about, but. Uh, Highly unusual for Nashville. Yeah, yeah. And now as the specter of soda, uh, of COVID is fading, you and I actually were able to restart face-to-face breakfast. Yes. Got to sit down and share a table. Had uh, uh, maskless conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's such a massive relief. Oh, gosh. I got to tell you. Yeah, yeah. 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 And now, now, you know, the speaking invitations are coming back in and events are getting scheduled. And I want to tell you, though, that the the tour bus situation here in Nashville has changed dramatically. You know, we were looking at tour buses last year, trying to set up maybe some kind of a coast to coast tour, not for positive sobriety, but for the Samson Society podcast. And man, uh, there were there were lots and lots of buses available. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i bet today yeah. today not the case i mean it's wow. like used cars and lumber forget yeah. it yeah everybody's you know itching to get back on the road get back connect it does feel good doesn't it hey are you noticing oh. that uh even just the quality and tenor of conversation improves when we're not wearing masks anymore you use that Oh, yeah. Golly. I mean, it's like I don't have to work as hard to read what people are saying to me. And uh, everybody yeah. doesn't look perpetually offended <laughs> you know, all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah you can yeah. tell a smile when you pass somebody in the grocery store as opposed to, you know, filling it in with your own uh, broken narrative that, you know, they're probably yeah. pissed at you for your clackety wheel or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, absolutely. It's so much easier to communicate with people. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, and by the way, I, you got to, that bounce in your step because it keeps getting a little bit higher, David, post surgery. Yeah. Feeling good. I, I am feeling well. I had a little bit of a setback last week and they put me on some medicine and, um, I'm going to have to, uh, take some medicine for a little while to help keep myself regular, uh, heart, heart wise. Um, so, but they said that's not an unusual thing. Uh, you know, your heart has memory, I guess, like, uh, anything else in your body. Mm. And, uh, Mm. it is kind of interesting because, uh, after it's repaired, it still wants to go back to an old, um, potentially old rhythm, or there are things it does to try to compensate for its new, right whatever, electro wiring or whatever this all is. I'm completely exposing my ignorance. But um, but there is a a tendency that the heart has to want to go to the old uh, arrhythmia. And so um, they want to keep you out of that because the longer you're in, you know, a broken cycle, the longer you'll stay uh, likely that that will become normal again. So uh, not to geek out on all that, but uh, it it has a lot of parallels in life. Yes, you know. Yes, and uh, it's uh, just funny because even our physiology wants to um, go back to something that's not what it's designed to be. You know, th- this is so fast. You know, with our expanding, exploding 
uh, knowledge of the brain. We're learning so much about the brain. We tend to focus solely on the brain mm -hmm. when we're describing behavior and especially when we're describing habitual behavior. Right. Uh, but it's becoming more and more uh, clear now that uh, it's not just the brain. The entire body keeps the score. There is mm -hmm. such thing as muscle memory and cell memory. Yeah. Uh, reading a fast, rereading a fascinating book this week, The Power of Habit. Mm. Uh, case studies where, uh, you know, subjects whose brains have uh, sustained such catastrophic damage from stroke or uh, disease that uh, the entire, the, the brain's entire capacity for memory has been obliterated, mm. can nonetheless operate on the basis of habit, preformed habits, and can mm -hmm. even over time form new habits, can actually learn at a habitual level in yeah. ways that leaves the subject absolutely mystified as how they are able to do what they're doing because mm -hmm. they have n no memory of learning it, no memory of ever having done it before. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, learning to build new habits learning to interrupt old habits. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the enterprise doesn't stop uh, at the brain. This really is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a full body experience. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you know, the more I, um, I learn about just the things that are, that I've gone through with the physical piece of this uh, mm -hmm. last month and a half or so, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting how how our our bodies um, are informing us even when we don't know it. Yes. Don't, don't yeah. realize it. You know, we're not aware yeah. of it. Um, and we, yeah. but, but we interpret it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, um, I was uh, reading something this week and it said, you know, I'm an observer of my thoughts and feelings, but I'm not uh, a prisoner to them. So just because wow. I'm experiencing something like, for instance, again, not to geek out on this heart thing. But that's all I've got right now. <laughs> so that's all I've done mm -hmm. for six weeks. Um, but it was interpreted by me before I knew what was wrong with me a year ago. I thought I was having panic attacks mm -hmm. uh, because my heart felt that way. Um, yeah. But I wasn't. I had something actually physically wrong uh, that when it's corrected can uh, continue to be adjusted and eventually, um, you know, remedied. But but in my right. false uh, assessment you know, right. um, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging this thing on it. And I think we do that a lot with our emotions, with our feelings. Um, you know, this must be what I'm, what I'm feeling when in fact, maybe it's not, maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's, um, mm. you know, old messages and a narrative that you play in your head so much that it's familiar and you don't even realize you're living by that. It's just impulse, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, mm -hmm. it, this has taught me, uh, to look at things a little bit more, uh, carefully. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned that you've been put on a medication, and there's a possibility you may have to take that uh, long term, I'm assuming. Yeah, for about a year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there may be, because of cultural conditioning, especially in recovery, a voice in the back of your head or maybe a voice from outside your head that says, oh, you know, to be healthy, you're going to have to you're going to have to get off of that drug as quickly as you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that can put you in uh, a dangerous and potentially fatal uh, conundrum, Absolutely. which is something our guest this week knows an awful lot about, and he mm -hmm. has an awful lot to say about it. Yep. Uh, this is a very informative and inspiring, uh, a fascinating conversation. You're going to love this week's guest. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sprite Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, I want to tell you, David, it is not very often that a first book wins a starred Kirkus Review and, and glowing endorsements from people like Maya Salowitz and Johan Hari. Yeah. But uh, a, book, a... a book that's due out on July 6th has scored that and other uh, acclamation. And we are privileged to have with us today on the show, the author, David Poses, joining us from New York City. David, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, uh, hey, we love our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level. Uh, this book, uh, The Weight of Air, is uh, is a memoir. With, I, I would describe it, I guess, having just read summaries and reviews, not having the privilege to actually read the whole book yet. Uh, kind of a combination memoir, social critique, a memoir with commentary. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if maybe you could start out by uh, giving us kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of your story, the long and winding road that got you here. Sure. Um, all right. So, uh, I mean, I, I was depressed uh, as a very young kid. My earliest memories are of my mom saying, why are you so sad? Uh, don't you want to be happy? You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, long before depression was part of my vernacular, um, I, I knew that I didn't want to be sad. I didn't know how not to be sad. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to talk about it. Um, and I was very ashamed. And um, my parents uh, separated when I was about three. Mom started taking me to therapy a year later. Um, I kept all of my worst feelings inside. Somehow my, my psychiatrist figured out that, that I was depressed. Um, and uh, so... You know, it was it was uh, just brutal. Um, I mean, I, I would lie in bed at night, you know, wishing for a, a terminal disease. Um, mm. And so, in fifth grade, uh, this cop came to my school for uh, a drug prevention assembly. Um, I grew up in the eighties, so it's the Dare program, right? And, yeah. And he and he said, um, uh, "You can't drive a car if you drink alcohol. Um, uh, pot makes you stupid." Cocaine makes you angry. Uh, he told this crazy story about a, a kid who took acid and peeled off his skin because he thought he was an orange. Um, and then he explained that heroin is the worst drug um, because uh, it's, it was originally a painkiller and it's so strong that it makes you not have feelings. And he said that in a way like it was, you know, a bad thing. Uh, and yeah. I, you know, I mean, I knew um, I, I knew that I had too much anger for uh, a 10 year old kid at that point. So cocaine was out of the question. Um, I didn't want to be any stupider. So, you know, there was pot, um, and, uh, alcohol. I mean, my, you know, lifelong ambition at that point was to drive into a tree. So, uh, I wasn't going to, you know, drink. Um, and, and when he was talking about heroin, I just thought like, that's exactly what I need. I, and, and I felt hope for, you know, the first time. So, over the next few years, um, my psychiatrist prescribed every antidepressant, uh, you know, on the market at that point. Nothing worked. Some made things worse. And, um, uh, you know, my friends, basically by the beginning of high school, my friends were all uh, smoking pot and, and drinking and, you know, using them like, uh, you know, garnishes for activities. Um, and heroin was nowhere to be found. I grew up just outside of New York City. Um, in the suburbs, and it was like trying to find plutonium. But you know, obviously, I tracked it down eventually. Um, and at that point, I mean, I, I was pretty much resigned to killing myself um, mm. if it didn't do what I thought it was going to do, and and it did. Um, so you know, like it was not even a question whether I was going to keep using it. But I couldn't stand the um, the lying and the risks and the, you know, getting ripped off and everything that goes with, uh, you know, having to buy illegal drugs every day. Um, and you know, my tolerance went up. So my, I, I was terrified of needles, um, as a kid. And, you know, I mean, it, it rendered that fear completely impractical. Um, so I started using it at 16 and I tried to stop a bunch of times, didn't work. Um, and so just before my 19th birthday, uh, I decided my mom went to Florida for a week and I decided I was just going to kick cold turkey at her house um, while she was gone. Um, I gave my best friend my car and my wallet and all my money. And I just put myself in like a no exit, you know, cold turkey kick. Um, and in the middle of that, uh, it, it, it was just so brutal. I ended up calling my father. I told him what was going on. Uh, he took me to a local detox. I, I left there after a couple of hours. Um, long story short, my parents sent me to rehab. Uh, to Hazelden in Minnesota, which at the time was you mm-hmm. know, like the Harvard of rehabs. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and and none of I was the first person I knew that went to rehab. I mean, I knew that um, I knew that rehab existed. Um, I, I was aware that AA was a thing, 
Um, but that was really all I knew. So when I got there and they said, my counselor said, you know, you have a disease um, and, and the only way that you got to put your life and will in God's hands and work the steps. Like, I just thought like that made absolutely no sense. Um, my mom had had cancer. So, you know, I thought um, I chose to stick needles in my arms. Mom didn't ask for cancer. Um, I decided to stop. Uh, there's no question that, you know, I'm, I'm, I, my compulsion for relief was, you know, no less, um, than before, but I just, it, it, I couldn't reconcile my experience with what they were saying and, and they didn't like that. Um, and all of the isms of, you know, it works and, uh, the things like, you know, I, I said, um, addiction isn't my problem. It's depression. Like my addiction is a symptom of a much bigger problem. And if we don't treat the depression, um, I'm not going to want to stop using drugs. Like, you know, this is a painkiller. Um, if my foot got chopped off and I was a heroin addict and you said, oh, the heroin is causing all of your pain, stop taking the heroin and your foot will feel much better. Like, you know, nobody would say that. And every time I made those kinds of points, they were saying like, you're rationalizing, you know, this is addict mentality and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, I mean, I was just like, look, I mean, we rationalize when our rationale is rational. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, call it what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, so, um, so, and, and sobriety, uh, I just, I couldn't understand how that was going to solve my problems and God, you know, I mean, as far as I knew, um, you know, we, we stopped believing that God cured diseases like after the bubonic plague. So, mm-hmm. um, so I got kicked out for making out with a girl. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that, <laughs> the uh, next best thing to heroin, I guess. Um, (laughs) So uh, so the book um, starts at that cold turkey kick um, just before rehab. So you're you're in Hazelden, like a couple of pages into the book um, and you get all of that kind of commentary. I mean, there were a couple of heroin addicts uh, or, you know, opioid addicts uh, in there at the time. It wasn't, you know, such a common thing in the nineties, I guess. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I was so, they told my mom when she visited that, um, I'm addicted to everything, which, you know, I had I tried alcohol in high school. Um, and I, I hated it. I got drunk once. That's the only time I've gotten drunk in my life. Um, I smoked pot a few times. I, I didn't like that either. So, you know, I was certain that I wasn't at risk of doing anything else. And, and they told my mom, you know, you got to get even like the hand sanitizer out of your house. He's going to get desperate for a high and he's going to start chugging Purell, you know? And I'm just like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I knew that. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my mom, um, you know, uh, or I remember my mom saying to me, uh, you know, everything that you're saying is making a lot of sense, but what if you're wrong? Cause these guys are saying you're going to be dead in six months. And um, so, you know, I, I, from there um, that basically started uh a i i lived i went to a halfway house in florida after that for about a week um and it was just relapse after relapse over the next uh you know 10 years i mean i would uh cobble together stretches of sobriety i mean i i didn't want to be um you know a a junkie um but i i didn't know how to live without dope and you know so and and i didn't believe that addiction was the problem but I wasn't really sure how to get help for what was the problem. And I was just so you know, overwhelmed with, with shame and emotions. Um, so it was just a very you know, long road of secrets. And I mean, I, 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 would, I, I never kept track of my you know, sober days, but um, I, w- I was you know, sober for as long as two or three years at times. And during those times, like, you know, I could barely get out of bed. I was miserable, but, um, I, you know, pretended mm-hmm. that I was okay. Cause I didn't want anybody to worry. Um, and when I was on heroin, you know, I, I built a successful career, everything was great. Um, but I hated myself for, for being, uh, you know, on, on heroin. So, um, so that cycle basically went on for, um, I, I ended up meeting my wife, uh, at some point along the way. And when, when she was pregnant with our daughter, um, I thought, you know, I, 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 this has to stop. Like I can't, I can't keep doing this. Um, and so when Ruby was born, I swore that I would never, you know, do anything drugs ever again. 
Um, and nobody knew about this stuff. Like as far as everybody in my life was concerned, I got sober at 18 and, and that was it. And I've been happy and, you know, sober since. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so everything, I, when, when my daughter was about two, um, I fell into this really dark hole of depression and I had this really awful thought that, um, you know, if I killed myself, there would be a lot of sympathy for um, my wife and daughter, you know? And if I went out and, and got some heroin to stop myself from killing myself, I would be, you know, an asshole. And, and that would be awful. Mm-hmm. And I'm I was sure that nobody wanted me to be dead, you know, my family, but nobody was going to understand that. So um, anyway, I had this, this very short um, relapse and uh, uh, with, with Percocet that I happen to have a prescription for. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, basically that kind of led to, um, buprenorphine, which I had known about before I tried heroin. Um, my friend who, who I had to beg for months to give me heroin for the first time, um, had participated in clinical trials in New York city in the Mm nineties. So, you know, I, I was aware that it existed, but I thought that it helped you with, um, only withdrawal. I didn't realize it was a maintenance drug. And methadone wasn't an option for me because I couldn't go to a clinic every day. Nobody knew about this. Um, so at the time, there were uh, six buprenorphine doctors within 200 miles of my house. Um, I called all of them to uh, try to get on. And one after the other, they um, oh, sorry. It was a couple of weeks after the Percocet experience. So there was no drugs in my body. Mm. And they all said, um, we, can't, we can't help you. You've got to come in. You've got to have you know, uh, a dope in your system in order to be um, you know, get into the program. And so I, I explained the paradox to them. Like if I go out and score, um, I'm not coming to you. I'm, I'm just going to keep using heroin. I don't want to do that. So, you know, please help me. And the last doctor on the list, um, I mean, you know, I, I was, I guess, more forceful with my begging. And I just said, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I have a kid, I'm married, I'm the breadwinner. I don't want to die. I know what's going to happen. Um, you know, please help me. And so he agreed to uh, break the rules. Um, and, and he took me in and, you know, within a, a, a minutes or, you know, however long it took for the couple of tablets to, uh, you know, dissolve under my tongue, I knew that, that that was the answer, um, to everything, you know, wow. because my, my opiate receptors were saturated. I mean, you know, depression is a degenerative biological condition. And so when they're telling me in rehab, like that's an excuse and snap out of it and whatever, like I, I knew that that wasn't true. Um, but anyway, so, um, so the, the buprenorphine like lifted my base level of emotional pain. I mean, if, if opiate receptors, um, you know, regulate your physical pain and emotional well-being, which is you know pain or, or not mm-hmm. emotional pain, and depression is painful. Um, so so having that kind of warm blanket around my receptors in a um, in a you know partial agonist format was fine. Like heroin wasn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't partying or getting high, like there was nothing recreational about my use. So mm-hmm. heroin, you know, I realized was like way overkill, you know? Um, so the, the partial agonist, uh, you know, raised my, it, it, it took care of the base level depression. I got into therapy. Um, I started working with a psychiatrist and, and that, um, you know, gave me a lot more tools to deal with, the, you know, and, and unpacking the emotional baggage and all of that stuff. So that was, um, in 2008 and that's what's been going on since. I mean, it was, it was right away. It was so obvious that that was the answer. Um, Mm. but you know, I still, my wife didn't know, um, nobody knew. And for the first decade I was on buprenorphine, I didn't tell anybody. Um, and you know, News headlines were, uh, there, there were starting to be, you know, the, the opioid crisis was starting to be a thing. People were dying. The, you know, these fentanyl analogs were saturating our illicit supply. And I had lost a bunch of friends to overdose. And, you know, I was just so overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And I knew that I wasn't the exception. Um, you know, the, the, the junkie stereotype was, I, I never knew anybody who fit that description. You know, it was anybody I knew that was on opioids was you know, depression was the gateway. Um, and it was, it was to kill pain. I mean, it so happened that it's not, you know, um, we, opioids are only available for, by prescription, uh, for physical pain. Um, you know, but they, they, they don't know whether they're killing emotional or, or physical pain. I mean, they do the same thing and, you know, whatever. So, um, so I knew that I wasn't the exception. 
I knew buprenorphine worked. I knew that people were dying. And I just, I felt like I can't be quiet anymore. I mean, I, I, I have to say something. Um, I, had, I had a successful career in, in private equity. Like the absolute last thing that I needed was to start telling the truth at that point. I mean, I was afraid, you know, my wife is going to leave me and my family is going to be devastated. I'm going to get fired and you know, all of these things and all of those things happened. Well, my wife didn't leave me. Um, she was very, uh, I mean, I shouldn't, I guess I was kind of shocked, but not surprised that she was so, um, understanding and compassionate. Um, so, so we're still together. Um, and I'm very you know, lucky and grateful for that. But, um, you know, I, once I started talking about it, um, it, it just turned into this, you know, I, I, people wanted me to come speak at things. And, and, um, I had written the book. Um, the idea was I'm, I'm going to write this and I'm going to give it to my wife as a, this will explain everything kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I, I did that and I had always, I mean, since I was like 16, um, I just basically wrote like one novel after another, um, and just kind of walked away from it after a while. Cause I didn't want to find out that I'm a sucky writer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, so I started sharing the book and I, I got a literary agent, um, and people were asking me to, you know, speak at things. And, and, um, I, I wrote some articles, uh, that, that got published. Um, but it was really like, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I was too insecure to like ask for stuff, you know? So like, mm-hmm. It was lucky that Washington Post called and said, will you write this thing? Like I would have never, uh, you know, done that. Um, and so, you know, just one thing led to another and, and, and here we are. Um, my, my book's coming out in, in less than two weeks and, um, you know, people seem to like it, which, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels great. Um, but but um, having validation for, you know, these views that I had 25 years ago that were like blasphemy and crazy and opinions Mm-hmm. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, like addiction science has, has, you know, reflected so much of that as irrevocable facts. I mean, buprenorphine is now, um, the standard of care for opioid addiction. We're finding out that, that, you know, faith and abstinence-based treatment actually increases your risk of overdose, relapse, and death while buprenorphine cuts it by, you know, 79%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I would never, you know, discourage anybody from doing anything that works for them. Um, but, I know for me and for the, the people that I know that, um, you know, struggled with opioid addiction, that buprenorphine was so much more, um, you know, successful and that, and that, you know, 12 steps and all that kind of business didn't, um, work. And I mean, you know, it's like, we know, I mean, I learned in fifth grade that each type of substance affects your neural pathways differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go to rehab and you're told a drug is a drug and once an addict, always an addict and it's all the same drug of choice doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, um, there's kind of this disregard of science along the way. And, um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I'm aware that a lot of people don't like what I'm saying. I have some very unpopular uh, positions, but it's all, you know, based in science um, mm-hmm. and, and lived experience. So David, uh, I imagine that there were some of our listeners who, when you first mentioned buprenorphine, uh, you, you kind of skated over it real quickly. And that now the, 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 the name of the drug has popped up a few more times. So now the syllables are becoming familiar. But uh, the first reaction was, what did he say? What is that? Uh, why is the, uh, this treatment, which has proven so effective for you and now being more wide, widely uh, uh, experimented with and accepted, why has it been such a mystery and why is it, and, and from what I understand, how, uh, tell us how available is it at this point Yeah, um, uh, for people uh, battling it, uh, opioid addiction particularly? Okay. Um, so, I mean, basically it's, it's effective because, um, you know, the, the biological mechanics of a hit of opioids, anything, um, is the same as, uh, you know, a hit of, of any other drug or gambling or sex or, you know, any other kind of addiction. Um, you know, it, it floods your brain with, with dopamine and serotonin. Opioids are different because they have a natural target in your brain, your opiate receptors, right? And there's all this, um, all these studies that shows that, you know, the idea that sobriety gets easier with time is true with everything else because, your neurotransmitters rewire and, and the connectivity rewires and, and there's, you know, the, the plasticity isn't broken. Um, 
So if you are a, uh, addicted to anything else, um, it will get easier as time goes on. The, your, your brain doesn't necessarily recover from opioid addiction. I mean, there's, you know, studies 30, 50 years out that, that shows that, you know, it, and it's not a like, oh, nobody was worse than me. I shot 12,000 bags of dope a day. Like, it's not that. Um, yeah. Your opiate receptors multiply with every dose, whether you're, you know, a hardcore stereotypical junkie or you're a grandmother who takes Oxycontin. Um, so buprenorphine um, bridges that gap. It basically, uh, it's like a warm blanket over your opiate receptors or, um, you know, it, it provides the saturation that they need. So if you're a person who um, starts using opioids because you're depressed or you're in pain or whatever it is, um, sobriety isn't going to cure that pain. I mean, it's just not, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of like white knuckling it through, you know, yeah, you can definitely do that. But um, I'm not a big believer in that. I mean, knowing how miserable I was. So, um, so it, you know, that's basically how it works. As far as the mystery of, um, you know, access, I mean, we have this kind of attitude that, well, the idea that anything, um, you know, the faith and abstinence programs or the step programs would tell you that, um, you know, you're not sober if you're taking anything other than Tylenol. I mean, antidepressants are, um, you know, a problem. So there's a lot of kind of shaming and, and stigma of taking buprenorphine or methadone. So faith and, yeah. faith and abstinence programs um, are uh, not as effective as buprenorphine. I mean, they're, they're proven to uh, dramatically increase your risk of death, relapse, and overdose, buprenorphine and, and methadone are, are proven to uh, dramatically you know, cut it. Um, so, um, but there's a lot of stigma within the faith and abstinence group. They consider anything other than, you know, Tylenol uh, to invalidate your sobriety. Um, there's a lot of, sh I mean, there's, there's a, a, a case in um, an AA group in uh, Syracuse, New York, that, that um, they, a couple of members shamed other members for taking antidepressants or buprenorphine. Um, and those members committed suicide. And so, um, you know, it, there, there's a huge divide among it. And, you know, personally, I, I don't care if anybody thinks that it invalidates my sobriety because I care about recovery. And I know that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a much better person. I can function. Like it's not, you know, you, nobody goes out and starts drinking vodka at seven o'clock in the morning all day and, and functions very well. But, you know, there's people all over the world that are prescribed opioids. Um, and we, we not only know that they can function on them, we know that they need them specifically to function. You know, nobody says like, Oh, grandma's on Oxycontin. Like, you know, you can't, she's out of her mind. Um, but if grandma was, you know, drinking vodka all day, we would know that it's not. So, you know, again, it's the kind of, uh, differences of each substance on our neural pathways. So there's that kind of prejudice baked into it. Um, and buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So the, the I mean, you know, anybody who says like, oh, it's just as bad as heroin, like, you know, well, fine, ask for buprenorphine after your next hip replacement surgery and let me know how it goes. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, um, so that is part of the problem. The other thing is the access in general, like the, the, the um, Drug Act of, of 2000, at stipulations that um, you needed the X waiver, doctor physicians needed an X waiver in order to prescribe, um, which really isn't such a huge deal to get. I mean, it's like an eight-hour, you know, thing, and then you get it. But um, we're starting with a huge deficit in the sense that there's a million and a half licensed physicians in the United States. Um, of that million and a half, eleven hundred eighty-three are licensed uh, to practice addiction. Right, so. Um, if there's 20 million people struggling with, with opioid addiction right now, um, then that's, you know, one to every, uh, 18,000, you know, 700 ish, uh, people, which is, you know, not, not enough. And the idea that doctors can prescribe, I mean, you know, I know a few doctors, it, it doesn't mean that they want to prescribe buprenorphine or even necessarily qualified to treat people who are on it. So, um, you know, even when Biden, uh, changed the, the rules a couple of weeks ago and, and now any, DEA licensed prescriber uh, physician in America can can treat, I think it's like 10 or 30. I mean, it could be a million. It, it doesn't really matter because, you know, my friend Eric, who's an emergency room doctor, um, we had this conversation about prescribing buprenorphine. He said, I really want to help, you know, should I do it or not? And, and I was just like, look, I mean, I think it's a really great idea for you to want to help. But if I knocked on your door and I said, I need buprenorphine, you're going to write me a prescription and then what? You know, mm -hmm. there's so many situations where we hear about, you know, like somebody um, 
you know, a teenager is depressed and their mom calls the primary care physician and says, you know, prescribe Prozac. And then they do because they want to help. And it's all with the best of intentions, but the, um, the physician isn't qualified to treat it. And so if the Prozac doesn't work or triggers more suicidal thoughts or whatever, like it's, it's going to completely slip through the cracks. And so that, um, I think that's the fear of buprenorphine, but, um, the stigma makes people think I shouldn't be on it for a long time. I should really like sobriety should be my objective. You know, I'm only going to be on it for a few months. And you know, that that's just a, a miserable loop. I mean, there's stories. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how many parents I've met over the past couple of years who have had a kid who was on buprenorphine was doing very well. And then, um, uh, you know, I know this woman who, whose kid was um, in rehab. They put him on buprenorphine. He was going to move to a sober living house. They couldn't find one that would take him on buprenorphine. They all said, you know, it's just an extension of his addiction. He's got to get off. We got to wean him down. He's going to die. He's lying to you, all that stuff. Um, so they did, moved him into a sober living home. And five days later, he died of an overdose. Um, and that's the most vulnerable time because you have no tolerance and there's no way to know what you're getting. I mean, you know, potency is by volume with everything. And so, you know, you're not going to, you know, nobody buys a beer and finds out it's, you know, methanol uh, after they drink it. But that's, that's why people die of, of illegal drug overdoses. I mean, that's why illegal drugs are involved in more overdoses. So that, that kind of thing happens all the time where people are kind of shamed out of it. Um, so there's a, a huge, I mean, you know, this is the leading cause of death in America right now. And yeah. opioid addiction is a national health emergency. And you can find a specialist to treat you for the most obscure form of cancer. You know, there's tons of them um, or, or, you know, some disease that nobody's even heard of. There's people who specialize in that. Um, but there's nowhere near enough doctors to treat people. And there's so much, um, you know, I mean, I've seen things, uh, you know, all this like kind of doctor shopping talk and like there's there's addiction has been so siloed off from, um, you know, science and medicine for so long that there's doctors who genuinely believe that like, you know, oh, AA is the cure, you know, that there's no reason to, you know, do anything else. Um, and we're finding that that's just not true. Um, so there's there's so much in the way of um, of getting the effective care, so many hurdles. Um, and then there's the shame of, I mean, you know, look, I didn't tell anybody for, for 10 years. And then once I started opening up, um, everybody I knew would say, um, well, wh- you know, when are you going to stop taking it? You've been on it for 10 years. Like, that's crazy. You weren't even on, you know, heroin, like, you know, barely that long. Um, and I would hear that and I'd be like, oh my God, I should stop taking this stuff. And of course I don't want to be, you know, I would love to not take anything. I know that I need it. Um, but you know, I, eventually I realized that like, um, uh, you know, if, if we were talking about diabetes, nobody would say, um, well, your diabetes is under control. When are you going to stop taking all of that insulin? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that's saving Mm -hmm. your life. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so I think, and, and if I'm a person who is out in the world screaming about this and I experience that kind of shame. I, you know, it's hard to imagine like an 18 year old kid in Kentucky right. uh, whose parents are being fed this, you know, he's got to get off the buprenorphine. It's, you know, all of that kind of stuff, like, you know, being able to advocate for yourself and, and not falling into that stigma. I mean, it, there's so much against us um, and we just, we need more doctors and more acceptance and, and understanding. I mean, there's yeah. so many myths that we believe that we shouldn't. And David, uh, listeners might know buprenorphine by the name Suboxone as well. Yes. And so um, maybe that's a, a more familiar name to some uh, than, than that. Do you, um, do you mind if I ask if you also take medication for your depression in conjunction with the buprenorphine? Yeah, I, I don't. Um, I, I tried uh, Wellbutrin um, very early on and, and that sort of helped a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really like, um, I mean, the, the way that I describe it, in the book is like, um, you know, if, if my brain is a football field, right. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm on the far end behind the, um, I don't, I don't watch football, so I don't know what those things are called that they throw the ball through. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, you know, so if I'm behind the, the goal, um, well, Butrin puts me a couple of steps in front of the goal, mm-hmm. you know, um, Heroin gets me to the other side, uh, the other goal. Mm-hmm. Um, buprenorphine gets me much further. 
uh, than Wellbutrin, like, you know, maybe to the 50 yard line or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, you know, it, there was really no point in, in taking Wellbutrin. Yeah. And you talk a little bit in your book too, about, um, the, uh, the way that we approach, uh, people who are addicted with the, the legal system and punitive, um, approaches, uh, to, uh, helping the addict by incarcerating them and things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, where maybe our punishing the addict, um, maybe back in the war on drugs became the war on addicts. I don't know, but, um, you know, how, how can you speak to maybe some of the social stigma that even, you know, makes its way into the legal system and race and socioeconomic, uh, areas because everybody doesn't have access to, uh, medically assisted treatment. And, um, so can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it really is a travesty. I mean, even with, with methadone, you know, it's very effective, but tethering people to clinic, like it's, you know, you can get heroin delivered to your house wherever you live in under 24 hours. You can't get buprenorphine or methadone that fast. I mean, and, and you can't get methadone in your house, you know, regardless. So it's really, you know, stacked against us. And as far as the laws go, um, I mean, you know, look, the, since the war on drugs started, um, overdose fatalities have, have been rising. I mean, you know, the war on drugs turned 50 last week and um, drugs have never been more powerful or plentiful or cheaper to buy. Um, and, and overdose is the leading cause of death right now. So, I mean, that alone tells you that we're doing something terribly, terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, during prohibition, we, alcohol fatalities surged during prohibition because you didn't know what you were getting. And that's what causes overdose. I mean, accidental overdose, like I thought I was being so careful when I was shooting heroin in the nineties, you know, uh, you know, I could shoot about a bag at a time and I'm, you know, pouring it out and measuring it carefully or whatever. You have no idea what you're getting. And that's really the danger. So the idea of, you know, we think that alcohol is safer than drugs, but that's just not true. It's alcohol is uh, harm is reduced because it's legal. You know, potency is by volume. You know what you're getting. You're, you know, like, and, and everybody knows, um, you know, maybe you can safely drink a beer without, I mean, I would probably die of alcohol poisoning, but you know, the average person would probably be fine. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean you could drink uh, a pint of, um, you know, grain alcohol without mm-hmm. dying or, or methanol, but you're not going to buy a pint of beer and then find out it's something else later. And that is the built-in harm reduction mentality. So if we did that with drugs, like nobody goes out and says, give me the fentanyl that's killing people and don't tell me that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know? so, so, so if overdose is... Um, uh, you know, an overly potent dose, right? And you don't know the potency of what you're dosing, it can't be prevented. And, and that's why people are dying. So one thing we can do is um, legalize and regulate drugs. I mean, everything is, is safer when it's legal and regulated. Um, and we're, we're putting people in jail and punishing that. Like, there's nothing helpful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there just isn't. I mean, you know, going to jail will make you stop using drugs if there's no drugs in jail. It won't make you stop wanting to use drugs. I mean, I would think you'd want to use drugs you know, so much more if you're in jail. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, so it, it, they're just, it seems to be this like absence of logic in everything that we're doing. And like my mom, um, you know, I think she knows more than the average person just by virtue of, you know, our conversations, but she falls into this mentality um, so often. I mean, she, we had this conversation the other day, um, it was every day with my mom and my brother. And they were saying, you know, how, like you're talking about legalizing drugs, like that's crazy. More people are going to start using drugs and it's going to blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm just like, look, I mean, did you guys like, did it, when you last filled up your car with gas, did you buy tons of beer at the gas station when you, you know, no. Well, would you, would you start using meth if, um, if it was legal? No. Do you know anybody who would? No. Well, we're bad examples and everybody we know is a bad example. Okay. So what makes you think then that everybody else, you know, I mean, we we dis, we debunk these myths every day in our lives, but we're somehow convinced that like everybody's going to be on drugs if drugs. I mean, there's no question that access more people will use drugs. Yeah. You know that is no question. But when something is dangerous, we find ways to make it safer. A hundred percent, without question. Take drugs out of the equation, and we want to make it safer. Talk about drugs, and somehow we think the exact opposite of everything that we, you know, it's like, well, if you fall off a bike, you might, you might hurt your head. Well, bike helmets would help that. No, we're not giving bike helmets out. That's going to encourage 
people to crash their bikes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> seatbelts are, are going to encourage people to have car accidents. I mean, the, you know, the syringe decriminalization that's going on right now. Like, I mean, you can get arrested for having a syringe. You can, uh, you know, Narcan is being used as probable cause. It's like clean syringes, um, you know, they, they decrease the, they, they save lives and decrease the spread of disease. That's all they do. Mm-hmm. If they led to drug use, every doctor would be on drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so I, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like if we, if we can think rationally about this stuff, like the answers are so obvious. We're just, we're, we're stuck in this ridiculous mindset. Um, so, yeah. Well, David, you are an articulate spokesman for change, an impassioned one. Uh, the book is The Weight of Air. Comes out, I think, on July 6th. Is that right? July 6th. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, but it's available for pre-order, I'm assuming, on Amazon. and Amazon, yeah, okay. yeah, Amazon everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, All right. If listeners want to contact you directly, I suppose I'm opening Pandora's box, but no, if they want to, yeah, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I have uh, on my website, uh, davidposes.com, there's like a contact um, form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I mean, I get a lot of correspondence. Um, I write back to everybody. It might take a little bit of time, but, um, you know, I love hearing from people. I mean, you know, that's, that's why I'm doing this. Um, I want to hear from people, so you know, please reach out. Um, there's links to all of my social media channels on the website, um, you know. But I mean, I, 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 I'm totally accessible. I'll give you my phone. Awesome, great. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. I am really stoked. I'm going to go pre-order the book right now. Cool, thanks. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for what you do. Uh, listeners, once again, davidposes.com will get you to the place where you can connect with David if you want to. The book, again, is The Weight of Air. Stick with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And, uh, Nate, I love this guy because this is a cutting edge conversation and it takes a lot of courage to come out and um, ask the questions that he's asking and and present to the recovery community something that is really um, for some people a controversial um, concept you know right um, right right we've right. approached recovery um, in a particular modality, uh, for the most part, in the last 75 years. And um, it is really important, I think, with especially the specific kind of drugs and, and uh, chemistry that we're talking about here, uh, for people to be able to ask this question about what is long-term help going to look like? And, and why is it a stigma to, uh, to treat a, to, to take a, a pill for a uh, consequence of a medication, you know, I mean, in one respect, you know, if you're on an antidepressant and it causes you one side effect, you get a medication for the side effect. You know, we don't have any problem doing that, but yet this seems to be in our, our society really controversial. So I appreciated very much David Poses and, um, what he's trying to say in the weight of air and, uh, the, the, the question he's trying to hold up or questions, yeah. you know, that he's trying to hold up yeah. to the, culture right. here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just hope that our listeners, especially, you know, those of us who have been helped, for example, by 12 step recovery mm-hmm. can kind of instinctively respond defensively or maybe even aggressively and critically to anybody who questions the universal efficacy of that approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important for us to take a step back and say that perhaps what worked for me is not going to work for somebody else. And maybe there is another approach to recovery that for them is going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And maybe what worked for me could actually be harmful to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very much. And, um, yeah. you know, I think it, it goes back to um, a lot of the stigmatization that we have in our culture uh, about not just addiction, but the type of addiction that we have, right. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Because that that there there 
I don't know if you experienced this or not, but there seems to be a tier uh, or a class yeah. system even among, yeah. you know, yeah. recovery yeah. Uh, at times. That, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I can I can go to work and say, oh, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic or, you know, I, I struggle right. with alcohol use disorder and uh, been sober for X amount of time and people you know, just don't blink. But uh, there are other things if we mention um, that we're going to get, you know, some serious pushback. So, right. Yeah. As, as the, uh, as the sex addict, I can attest to the truth of that statement. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, Hey, Already, I mean, time is flying here, and we're almost to the end of the show. We, first of all, I want to repeat that we thrive on communication with our listeners. We love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Any suggestion, any encouragement, uh, you can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we're also grateful to our sponsor, David. Tell us about our sponsor. We are grateful to BetterHelp. Uh, that's BetterHelp H E L P uh, dot com. And if you go to BetterHelp dot com slash Positive Sobriety, we will uh, get to hear um, how our resources are helping listeners, and you will get a fit, about a ten percent discount uh, on your first uh, subscription to their um, service. And uh, their service happens to be licensed online therapists uh, uh, accessible to you at home uh, for you to uh, actually have your own private therapy sessions, right, in the comfort of your kitchen or your living room or wherever you are. And uh, these are are people that are trained, licensed, again, licensed therapists that can – they can address anything from addiction to depression to LGBTQ issues to um, anxiety issues. And if you feel that your uh, therapist may not be the perfect match for you, you can um, opt to change without any – uh, problems or interruptions with the service. So um, we would love for you to take advantage of betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. Awesome. Well, uh, once again, our thanks to yeah. our peerless producer and engineer, Rex Schnelli, on uh, his devotion to the mission of this show. Absolutely. Uh, Gratitude to all our listeners. Thank you. Oh, by the way, listeners, if you are helped by the show, it does help to drive us in the ratings, get us uh, more visibility and therefore more listeners, a bigger audience. If you give us a positive review on uh, wherever you download this podcast. Well, until next time then, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 